0: Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi everybody. Paul's a proper historian all the way from
1: Oxford. Thanks Mikey. Okay folks, so here's the show... It's about the unsung heroes, yeah. the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have so
0: changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually made it, it's also about the cock-ups. <laughs> yeah, those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today.
1: Well, good day, folks. Welcome to the show. We're getting to the end of the year, which means only one thing. It's time for another of our Christmas specials. (laughs) And Mikey, you're going to kick us off with a great story from the 19th century, all about one of my favourite drinks, eggnog.
0: Not just egg dog, mate, but also to one of the most venerable military academies in the world, right? West Point. Ah, now, now you have to remember, West Point it's founded in eighteen oh two. Now it's not just produced military leaders, but also astronauts, business leaders, as well as two American presidents. Well. Actually, you could say three American presidents, sort Mm -hmm. of, but to do that, you'd have to include Jefferson Davis, the guy who'd lead the Confederate States during the Civil War. So so not really a president, but I mention him because he was there when the thing that happened, the thing I'm about to talk about, occurred. Guess what I'm going to be talking about, mate? Uh, well, apart from eggnogs, what, recipes? Riots. Riots. The Great West Point Eggnog Riot of 1826. Ooh. Now Now, like, like many Australians, look, I've heard of eggnog, but I've never really had some myself. I guess it's it's more of a northern hemisphere. Yes, you know, definitely you know, northern. Yeah, you know, yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking Yuletide traditions on a hot Christmas day. You really don't want to have a, a warm <laughs> glass of eggnog no. whilst, whilst you're dangling your ankles in your brother-in-law's swimming pool. <laughs> But eggnog's place in American history, however, is definitely one associated with standing around a warm fire while the snow piles up outside. Mm. In fact, so central is eggnog to the American Yuletide traditions, historians to this day are still arguing about the details of the eggnog recipe that George and Martha Washington used to serve to Christmas guests at the old Mount Vernon festivities. <laughs> However, look, the recipe I'm about to quote I'm going to give you the one which is most often quoted. It's hmm. from an old farmer's almanac. And look, and it does show that when George Washington came to eggnog, he wasn't mucking around. <laughs> okay, so you got one quart of cream, one quart of millet, mm. one dozen tablespoons of sugar one pint of brandy, half a pint of rye whiskey, okay. half a pint of Jamaican rum, <laughs> three quarters of a pint of sherry. Now, once mixed with a dozen eggs, this this heady mixture would be let to sit. Now, even if this drink is you know just folklore, by 1802, the folklore had taken root and eggnog was not just seen as an essential winter warmer on a cold December night, but actually in America, a patriotic drink Filled with the history of the young nation, as well as a handy way to get completely off your face (laughs) and toast the memory of Mount Vernon. (laughs) Now, unfortunately for the cadets at West Point, their new superintendent, he was a rather fierce disciplinarian with the wonderful name of Colonel Sylvanus Thayer, Mm. and he just recently banned the purchase, consumption and storing of alcohol within the academy's grounds. Right. It was announced by him that in the Christmas of 1826, that the eggnog was going to be non-alcoholic. And students did what, well, students have done since medieval times, they smuggled booze onto the campus. (laughs) So on the 22nd of December, in a mood that they assumed would have made their founding fathers proud... Three cadets stuck out to a nearby tavern Mm. and with the aid of a commandeered rowboat smuggled two gallons of whiskey and a gallon of rum back into the barracks. Mate, there was going to be a lot of nog in those eggs. (laughs) Now, things seem to have kicked off two days later in the north barracks at West Point, but it soon escalated. By four in the morning on Christmas Day, the authorities had become aware of the cadets' hijinks. Captain Hitchcock investigated and was ignored only later to have the windows in his room broken (laughs) and a shot fired off his direction. It was reported that as Hitchcock was making his retreat from the barracks, the cadets could be heard chanting, get your dirks and bayonets and pistols if you have them. Before this night is over, Hitchcock will be dead. (laughs) By this stage, the drunken party had also spread to the south barracks, where a Captain Thornton tried to intervene. He came off even worse than Hitchcock. <laughs> the drunken students actually attacked their superior officer and knocked him unconscious, most probably with a, with a bit of 4B2. <laughs> By the next morning, the north barracks were in a calamitous state. The furniture was smashed. The banisters, mate, they'd actually been ripped off the stairs. <laughs> All the windows had broken, as well as any piece of crockery the drunken cadets could lay their hands on. Ooh. Now, this was when the arrest started. Six cadets resigned, sure. 19 were Court martialed Amongst the ten expulsions was a future Supreme Court judge. But as for Jefferson Davis, well, mate, just as what would later happen in the aftermath of the Civil War, he got off very lightly. Right. The young Davis was just confined to barracks for a month. Mm. Look, mate, it may come as no surprise that the military establishment was mortified by the behaviour of their so-called best and brightest. And there were some consequences. But probably the largest consequences was... The first rule of eggnog riot is don't talk about eggnog riot. (laughs) Look, Matt, there wasn't like a a cover-up per se, but the events of Christmas 1826, well, Matt, they were just considered too scandalous to be endured and it was allowed to just simply fade from the history of the academy. So much so that when when a recent commander at West Point was asked about the riot, he gave the opinion that virtually none of the contemporary students would even have heard about it. (laughs) G'day you know, folks, uh, we're getting festive, we're getting yulish, and you can't get yulish, we're not in my place without turkey. With so, so Paulie, what do you got? All right, the turkey story and how turkey
1: became part of Christmas. Now obviously it's tied in with the history of North America, as you might mm. expect. But it's also, Mikey, a bit of a tale about history, colonisation and trade. And that all starts with the actual name. Because you see, the species we know as the turkey, uh-huh. it's indigenous to North America and until a few hundred years ago the only names for it that existed in any language were Native American. But of course as with so much of that culture unfortunately those names were rejected, ignored and discarded by the early British settlers in those early 13 colonies. Yet prior to the colonisation of the New World Britain had actually been importing other big meaty species of wildfowl for centuries often from, and you might guess this, oh, the no. country of... Turkey! The country of Turkey, which is why that was the name that was soon given to this big bird with a gobbly neck in North America. <laughs> but what I think's really interesting, yeah. Mikey, is that in Turkey, the country, Istanbul, yeah. their older breed of wildfire birds, well, obviously, the Turks had given them their own name, a different name. The Turks, you see, they'd called their birds the Hindi, because originally... This was a bird that had made its way to the courts of the Ottomans from India. And in fact, Mikey, the French also called that particular species of bird, the cock Dindi, the Indian chicken, while the Portuguese, uh. they call the North American turkey a Peru because as the story goes, that's where they reckon they got their first imports from. You get it. Okay, but back to the UK. So gradually, throughout the 1500s, Mikey, the North American turkey was gaining popularity enough so that it's actually name checked in william shakespeare's 12th night oh. with that quote the contemplation makes a rare turkey cock of him how he jets under his advanced plumes but it's not until the victorian period mikey really that the turkey becomes associated with christmas because it's during this period that families realize is you know not just big enough to share around, but also cheaper than some of the more lavish alternatives. Because, you see, traditionally, the English, certainly the aristocracy, they would have eaten swan yeah. or goose yeah. or heron or a pheasant in their celebrations. But it's the Victorians, they're the ones who go for turkey. Obviously, most famously in Dickens's Christmas Carol, yes, where Scrooge buys the turkey for the Cratchits to replace their smaller bird, which, funny enough, was one of those old-fashioned geese, which, of course, the English had eaten previously. But despite a lot of common misconceptions, Mikey, it wasn't actually Dickens who made the turkey popular. Turkey's actually been eaten by the English for quite a few decades before Dickens wrote any of his books. Rather... The rise of the turkey as the national Christmas dish, it's actually commonly held that William Strickland was responsible, a Yorkshire-born businessman, and he was a trader who introduced the turkey into Britain after returning with breeding pairs from his voyage to America. And in fact, he makes so much cash from this venture, Mikey, he actually commissions a new family coat of arms with a turkey smack bang in the middle of the emblem. And as if that wasn't enough For your turkey farmer, next in the first half of the 20th century, again, because it's so cheap for such a big bird, turkey farmers the world over got their second big payday when it was adopted as the signature dish for Thanksgiving. Whereas previously, again, the Americans, like the English, had generally preferred different birds, one that were a bit more juicy. Mate, let's be honest, I mean, turkey can be very bloody dry. (laughs) Well, that's true, Mackie, but once again, it seems that history might be able to teach us a lesson on this one because it does seem that if you cook turkeys as they're meant to be cooked, originally on a spit turning over Ah, an open fire, it cooks much more evenly, it doesn't dry out, and really is
0: a feast fit for a king. Here's a little Christmas hint from my nana. To keep the turkey breast moist, she used to lay bacon over the top of it and the good thing is three-quarters of the way through she'd take the bacon off and you can nibble on that while the rest was cooking.
1: All right well that's the Christmas dinner taken care of but it's not all Christmas cheer is it Mikey? No mate
0: it isn't. I want to talk to the werewolves of Christmas. Okay now, as you might imagine December and the cold months of winter for centuries, they've, they've been associated with stories about werewolves. Sometimes mischievous, sometimes deadly, and made always more than just a little bit odd. But here's the thing: the whole Christmas werewolf tradition, mm. well, it's probably got a take. It definitely got its origins in pagan rituals associated with the winter solstice. Mm. That being said, there is actually an ancient Greek precedent that I really want to talk about because it is just weird. <laughs> I'm not talking a werewolf, I'm talking a monkey. Okay. <laughs> or to be precise, the ancient Greek mythical creature, the kalikansaros. Now this is a monkey-human hybrid. Mm. And let's be honest, I had never heard of this beast before. Me neither. Because okay. it spent most of the year underground, but would rise to the surface at night to cause mayhem, now, fortunately for the ancient Greeks, it would seem that this uh, were monkey was mostly, well, it, 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 was more, it was more of a mischief maker than anything else. Its idea of fun was scaring the livestock, horses in particular. Mm. And let's not forget that the culture that gave us Plato and Aristotle had also devised a cunning plan to make sure that this mythical monkey boy could not get up to too much mischief. Mm. It was a very simple plan, mate. On what we'd call Christmas Eve, mm. all you had to do was leave a colander out on your front porch. Right. Now, according to legend, the Calicatzaros was fascinated by this simple household item, and it would spend the whole night compulsively counting its tiny <laughs> little holes with the creature so distracted by the colander, your livestock could sleep in peace until morning, when the monkey boy would just slink off back to his subterranean home. But what I really want to talk to you today about is... Northern European werewolves. Yes. As I said before, the notion of werewolves running rampant in the darkest days of winter, well, it long outlived pagan beliefs, and along the way, it gets enmeshed into the Christmas folklore. Okay. And once in that folklore, they really stuck, so that long after the so-called Dark Ages, even past the medieval period, mm. we still get werewolf stories coming thick and fast. In fact, some of the most authoritative writing about werewolves in Christmas comes from the 16th century. Look, that's an age that gives us the first pocket watch, microscope, barometer, and also to the earliest version of a flushing toilet. (laughs) Yet it's also an era in which werewolves were documented by no less an authority than the Swedish diplomat, cleric and writer, Oluis Magnus. Right. He documents how the good folk of Prussia... Uh, uh, Livonia, which is an area which encompasses sort of modern-day Estonia and Latvia, Mm. and Lithuania were regularly plagued by werewolves on Christmas night. According to old Magnus, after the werewolves had gathered on Christmas night for some seriously hard partying, they would, I'm going to quote here, rage with wondrous ferocity against human beings from when human habitation has been detected by them isolated in the woods. They besiege it with atrocity, striving to break in the doors. And in the event of doing so, they devour all the human beings and every animal which is found within. Mm. Although some other historians argue that the main motivation of the werewolves was to get into the house and down into the cellar (laughs) and consume all the wine and the beer. Look, let's face it. Either way, it doesn't end well for the villagers. Right. Also, too poorly, riding around the same time, in fact, in 1560 was the physician, for want of a better word, a guy called Caspius Pusa, who recounted another popular folklore tale from the Baltic region. Mm. Okay, I'm going to quote. At Christmas, a boy lame of leg goes around the countryside summoning the devil's followers, which are many, to a general conclave. And the whole multitude become wolves. They fall upon herds of cattle and flocks of sheep. According to Casper, this goes on for around about 12 days. 12 days, you know, sound mm. familiar? Until the werewolves shed their fur and resume their human form. Until next Christmas, <laughs> when the lad magically reappears, summoning these abandoned souls back into the wolf pack, I would betide anyone who appears reluctant to assume their wolfish form because, as the good doctor notes, they will be driven into the conclave at the end of an iron whip. Mm. It sort of adds a bit of a new twist to the age-old question, say, you've got any plans for Christmas? <laughs> but, Paulie, here's where it gets even weirder. Mm. I want to talk to you about wolf babies. Now, it would seem that this strange belief, it stretched from the Mediterranean all the way up into the Baltic, you know, once again, starting back in the Dark Ages and still prevalent in the 15th and early 16th century. You see, mate, the most common belief is that anyone who indulged in the act of blasphemy was going to produce a sinful child. If, however, this child was conceived in or around the celebration of the birth of Christ, then that offspring was an even greater affront to the Son of God, and as such, they were more than likely to grow up and become a werewolf. (laughs) The child's driftful fate also served as a form of punishment against their blaspheming parents. So you get a wear baby for two ways. You get a wear baby from blaspheming. You get a wear baby for having sex on Christmas Day, and you get to get a double wear baby for doing both on the same day. Hmm. Not surprisingly, this nonsense eventually crossed the Atlantic. But here's the strange part: it gained a poor hold in the often-regarded more rational nation of Canada. Mm. Louis Fréchet wrote in his Christmas in French Canada that for many years the pioneers of Quebec believed that a man who has been seven years without partaking of the Easter sacrament falls prey to the infernal power and may be condemned to rove about every night in the shape or skin of a wolf or any other kind of animal, according to the nature of his sin. Now, Frechet wrote these words in 1899. Okay. And by the title of the work, one can assume that he's also regarding these tales of werewolf behaviour as being another, and dare I say, only recently abandoned, Chrissy tradition. Mm. But don't worry, the good old USA doesn't go completely (laughs) werewolf-free. And once again, it's a French connection. Mm. For many years, Cajun residents of Louisiana have depicted Père Noël making his way through the wetlands and swamps. but instead of a sleigh, he travels in a flat-bottomed paroquet or barge, mm. pulled by alligators with a werewolf in the lead. Wow. It should be noted that in more recent depictions, the werewolf has a bright and shiny nose. <laughs> Rudolph-like, which I suppose is cute. Mm. Okay, Paulie, like any good Christmas celebration, it's time to bring us home with a sing song. (laughs) Right. Okay, so Christmas carols, of
1: course, how can we not mention them? But funnily enough, Mikey, the songs we know as Carols today, they were sung in Europe thousands of years ago, but they had nothing to do with Christmas. They're actually pre Christian. Pagan songs, a bit like your werewolf story. Oh, were monkey. <laughs> the were monkey story, right. sorry. And these songs, they were sung in the summer and winter solstice celebrations as people danced around their stone circles. And the word carol actually means dance or oh. dance of praise and joy. So you see, carols used to be written and sung throughout the year, but only the tradition of singing them at Christmas has really survived. And that, of course, is all to do with the church. We're now in the medieval times, Mm -hmm. and you've got monks and churchmen all over Europe starting to write Christmas carols. However, not many people actually like them because they're all written and sung in Latin. All right. In fact, you could say that by the time of the Middle Ages, particularly the 1200s, most people had lost interest in celebrating Christmas altogether. It was something they were quite happy to leave to the monks down on their knees and praying in their monasteries. But fortunately for us, Mikey, this all changed with St. Francis of Assisi. Because in 1223, he starts producing his nativity plays Ah. in, in Italy. And the people in the plays, they start singing songs or canticles to help move the story along. With these songs, so the tradition of carols is revived and they start to spread. In fact, the earliest carol in English seems to have been written in 1410. Now, sadly, only a very small fragment of this still exists, but it seems the carol was something about Mary and Jesus meeting different people in Bethlehem.
0: Which I suppose is a good way of spreading the Nativity story in a way the common folk could understand. Well, that's it, Mike, and it seems to be the same
1: tactics they use in most of the carols at this time, because in the Elizabethan period... You've usually got a mixture of truth and folklore very loosely based on the Christmas story, but emphasizing the holy family Mm -hmm. with the aim of them being entertaining rather than religious songs. And certainly back then, they were usually sung in the homes rather than in churches. You know, you'd have these traveling singers or minstrels. They would go around the country singing the carols, visiting people's homes and changing the words to apply to the local people wherever they were travelling to. Sort <laughs> of like our rock band says, hey, no one rocks harder than Newcastle, if they're doing a gig in Newcastle. But then, of course, in England, you've got the Puritans coming yeah. to power. We're now talking the 1640s, and the celebration of Christmas mm-hmm. and any singing of carols was not just frowned upon, but banned across the country.
0: I've said it before and I'll say it again. Those Puritans, they wore the buckles on their hats are way too tight. And they may well have succeeded, Mikey. Yeah, you know, in carol singing, it could have
1: died out completely if it hadn't have been for the Victorians. Now, we've already mentioned Dickens with his Christmas mm. carol, but there's two other men in particular, William Sandys and Davis Gilbert. They start going around England, collecting lots of the old Christmas music, old Christmas songs, and soon the whole tradition is not just being revived, it's thriving. Although for the most part, Mikey, carols are still sung as folk songs in pubs rather than churches, and sometimes the official carol singers were called waits because they sang on Christmas Eve, which was often known as watch night or wait night because of the shepherds watching their <gasps> sheep when the angels appeared to them. I was going to ask you that. And so now, finally, at the end of the 19th century, that's when we get to the point in the story where the carols, the traditions and all the songs and all the singing become synonymous with the starting of Christmas celebrations. And don't forget, Mikey, also at this time, you've got many orchestras and choirs being set up in the towns and cities of England. And naturally, these people wanted songs to sing, particularly at Christmas. So carols soon became extremely popular in churches and concert halls alike. And that's why, Mikey, so many of the carols we know today were written during this period, one of which is my favourite, you know, the old Good King Wenceslas song, and I've got a little story about that, but I think I'm going to save that one for extra helpings. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer.
0: That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist.
1: The rest is hist. And you'll find all
0: that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback.
1: Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of
0: extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, everyone, it's our last extra helping from the year. Everything from space travel to silk roads, from, well, some disgusting stuff to maps.